0: so welcome everyone to the third session of this year's uh, proceedings of the aristotelian society meetings it uh, gives me enormous pleasure to welcome uh, professor john gardner professor of law and philosophy at uh, all souls oxford He's going to talk to us tonight about discrimination the good the bad and the wrongful thank you thanks very much um now uh I am slightly undecided about how best to do this because this was originally a lecture and as a lecture it worked very well but since since then it's become a paper and that gives me now the awkward question of whether I deliver bits of the paper to you or whether I just talk extemporaneously in it I'm probably going to end up mixing these two idioms up and to make matters worse my very focals which at my age I need have broken so I have to keep doing this from my reading glasses to my distance vision glasses. I apologize for that, which I'll just add to the awkwardness. Um, So this, as the paper explains at the end, this is a subject that I worked on many years ago. And uh, when I worked on it many years ago, I I felt that it was still intellectually immature. And since I was too, I wasn't adding much maturity to it. Uh, And I went off and worked on some other things. Uh, But uh, maturity has come to the subject in the intervening period, and when I was asked to give some lectures in Brazil uh, by a foundation dedicated to anti-discrimination, I thought, well, this is an opportunity to catch up with all that reading, uh, find out who's been saying what, and see if I have anything to say. And this, this is the first paper to come out of that uh, re-encounter with the subject, but I'm expecting uh, to do more work on it, subject to what you guys say about the achievements so far. Um, so the, the, the paper begins um, with uh, a brief discussion of what I regard as a rather incidental debate in the literature about whether we should use a moralized or a non-moralized uh, concept, people say, concept of discrimination. Um, I'm not sure that you get to choose concepts like that. But that, that's the way it's often put. Which are we going to choose, a moralized or non-moralized concept of discrimination? I, I, I introduced some considerations here briefly in favor of going for a non-moralized concept. Or for rather, the way I would put it, for thinking that the concept of discrimination is not moralized. Uh, that's a non-volitional uh, way of stating the point. Um, but nothing much turns on that because everything I discuss in the paper could be adapted quite straightforwardly to suit the idiom of those who think in the moralized way that discrimination is always analytically bad. I don't think that. I think discrimination can be good, can be bad, and the challenge is to work out when and why it's bad. And then when and why it's wrong. And it's part of the unfolding of the paper that we move through badness to wrongness and distinguish those two things uh, as we go along. Um, and the move isn't very straightforward. It turns out to be complicated to move from the badness of discrimination to its wrongness, at least the way that I'm pursuing the argument. There, as I say somewhere towards the end, this may not be the whole story, and there may be places where other considerations can be introduced that would disrupt still further the already rough, Road that I'm dragging us along. So um, the um, let me move to my reading glasses for a moment. Um, the way I begin the paper is by um, just uh, putting my faith in uh, uh, a, a specification of what discrimination is, which is really very simple, and I. I hope have, you, have all of you laid your hands on a handout? Because if you haven't, you've sat very far towards the back, and there are lots of them at the front. Um, but on the handout, if you've got your hands on that, you'll find that there's a, a, an explanation of what discrimination is, which I call the discriminator's reasons analysis, or the DRA for short. So throughout the paper, this unfortunate abbreviation, DRA, recurs. And under the discriminator's reasons analysis, to discriminate is to treat someone or something that supposedly has property P differently, doing so for the supposed reason that he or she or it supposedly has property P. I included the its because I didn't want to assume at the very start that discrimination was always among or between or against people. those who have a moralized view of what discrimination is always assume that all discrimination is among or between people. And I didn't want that assumption to be there. But it hardly matters. I don't use any examples in the paper of discrimination among or between cakes or films, although I think there can be discrimination there too. But anyway, that analysis is—it uh, doesn't have a valence. It doesn't suggest that discrimination is negative or positive. Nor, much to the surprise of some people, does it tell you in advance that there's some uh, master list of, um, of properties that belong on the list of discrimination properties? So I didn't put in, as some people expect, that the list begins with race, sex, etc. Uh, I wanted to leave all of that completely open. And in fact, although the examples of bad and wrong discrimination do tend to fix on those very familiar examples of bad and wrong discrimination. I didn't want any of the examples to be question begging or to anticipate what our ultimate verdicts might turn out to be about which properties are the ones that we shouldn't uh, use when we're deciding among people or when we're discriminating. I wanted that to be left open because I wanted it to be a general analysis that would apply depending on contingencies. And that's very, very important to the ultimate thesis of the paper that uh, bad and wrong discrimination, uh, what's bad and wrong discrimination varies from time to time and from place to place. Um, And that's another shock uh, to some people working in the subject who were looking for something timeless. So the uh, one attraction for me of the uh, DRA, the Discriminators Reasons Analysis, is that it doesn't have a valence. And another attraction is that it leaves open what should be on the list of Ps that would make it have a valence, that <laughs> would turn it into, that would turn discrimination bad. Um, but there's a there's a word in the DRA that does more work than anything else, and that needs more attention than anything else before we can press on, and that's the word differently. So. To discriminate is to treat someone or something that supposedly has property P differently, doing so for the supposed reason that he or she or it supposedly has property P. So the differently raises a whole cluster of problems. So obviously you begin by asking differently from what? And there's a tradition of um, thinking that uh, you need to find some other candidate, uh, who is the one relative to whom this candidate, the one uh, who is claiming to have been discriminated against, uh, who is the comparator, another, another being or thing that's present in the competition for something. And that gives rise to a picture of discrimination which is always competitive, comparative and which makes it very easy to segue into talking about equality. Uh, So suddenly books that used to be called discrimination law in the 1990s started to be called equality law and even the legislation changed from being the Sex Discrimination Act to being the Equality Act. And this is partly because of a move in the literature towards thinking of discrimination as uh, a comparative exercise where you have an A and a B uh, and uh, A is treated better and B is treated worse. So in the paper, I uh, strike out against that view. Uh, that's one of my initial moves. I say, discrimi- further for discrimination, there doesn't have to be another, um, an, another candidate, a comparator, as the lawyers put it, and even the law doesn't require there to be an, another. So I give the, an account uh, of what I call Robinson Crusoe discrimination, in which Robinson is, is on his island and Friday Man Friday shows up. And um, uh, unlike in Defoe's story, uh, Ro- Crusoe takes against Friday because he's black. He says, I'm not going to work with any black guys. And the question is, is that discrimination? Well, it wouldn't be discrimination if there had to be another candidate. And there's no other candidate but Friday for the job of co-worker with Crusoe. It's not like he's taking on A white candidate in order to turn down a black candidate is not a competition. Uh, He's just not working with any black guy. And so he's not going to have uh, a competition. Uh, He's not going to have an assistant. And I suggest that we should think of this as discrimination, race discrimination in this case. Um, And I point out that so does the law. The law thinks that too, because in the law, it's enough, and this is on my handout as well, it's enough that you treat somebody differently from how you treat or would treat another. That's enough. So you only need what's called a hypothetical comparator to make discrimination. So I want to hold on to that feature that's in the law, which I think is also present in the Crusoe story that I, uh, as I've adapted it, that uh, Crusoe, on my account, is discriminating against uh, Friday, even though he's not at the same time discriminating in favor of some other candidate. And that turns out to be very important because it's often assumed that all discrimination against one is discrimination in favor of another and therefore discrimination between. But I uh, spent some time in the first part of the paper uh, disaggregating uh, those various relations such that discrimination against doesn't always entail discrimination in favor of another and therefore doesn't always entail discrimination between. That's an important um, preliminary to some of the things that come uh, later in the paper. So if you look at my handout again, you'll see that I've quoted from the most recent formulation in the Equality Act of 2010, just to, in case you mistrust my claim that the law says what I say. Um, A person A discriminates, you can forget the word in square brackets for a moment, a person A discriminates against another B if, because of a protected characteristic, A treats B less favourably than A treats, or would treat others, if there were any others, which there needn't be. So not all discrimination is in a a competitive situation. One of the reasons why that turns out to be very important in policymaking is that it's often assumed that um, uh, positive discrimination, that's to say discrimination in favour of a protected minority, something like that, is to be objected to because it's always discrimination against somebody else. Now that may be true in many practical contexts, but it's not part of the very logic of the idea. Uh, there doesn't have to be a somebody else for there to be discrimination. And so not all discrimination in favor automatically is discrimination against. And in the paper here, I, I concentrate on the badness and then later the wrongness of discrimination against. I have, I have nothing to say about discrimination in favor which is not discrimination against. The paper is entirely structured by the thought that discrimination against is the uh, arena in which the problem of discrimination is to be fought out. Now, Now, why is that? It's because we have to begin in thinking about discrimination, I think we do, by asking what there is to object to in discrimination and there's one obvious thing to object to in discrimination which is that somebody loses uh, it's built into the legal definitions and I think it's built into the concept that when you discriminate against someone not when you discriminate to court when you discriminate against someone you have a loser whether or not you also have a winner and uh, that's built into the legal explanations of what of, of Uh, unlawful discrimination by the the use of the concept of detriment. In in this paper I've instead used the concept of disadvantage. It turns out to be more versatile and to be more helpful to cast the problem as a problem about disadvantage. So so the, the initial elemental thing that you can object to in discrimination against is the against bit. Somebody loses. And you may say, well, That can't be really objectionable, can it? I mean, somebody has to lose. We have to lose all the time in all sorts of ways, and it's not always something to complain about. And I agree about that, I agree that if I stopped there and said, well, it's all about the detriment, you would say yes, but you haven't said anything about the discrimination yet. You've concentrated on the against and not the discrimination, and that, if that were the end of your argument, would be an argument against not giving people things which is not what we want to study. We want to study not giving people things discriminatorily. So attention moves on to what the uh, adverb there adds. Uh, What what does it add? What's the special problem about detriment that's discriminatory? And uh, the second section of the paper is um, designed... To um, introduce a very rudimentary thought uh, which applies not just to discrimination but has a special salience in the context of discrimination. It's this. It's that if you're going to disadvantage somebody you'd better have a reason to do it. And um, in the beginning of um, section two of the paper um, I, I, I probably I labour a little bit the conditions that I believe attach to um, justification for anything. Um, I spell out some conditions for justification that I believe are of general application, and they should be the ones that are used not just in ethics and legal philosophy, but also in epistemology. They're the, the very criteria for justification. And I've put them also on the handout at the bottom of that first page. And they are, by comparison with the rest of the paper, rather technical. Um, but there are three of them, and I'm just going to go through them now. So the first I've already introduced you to in passing, if there are any reasons not to phi, whatever phi may be, then fine calls for justification. Or as I put it before, you better have a reason. That's the first condition. The second condition for justification, fine is justifiable. You've got to hear the able bit, justifiable, if there are reasons in favor of fine, and the reasons against fine are not sufficient to outweigh or override all the reasons in favor of fine. So that's a mouthful. And in the terminology that I like to use, which is used by many other people, uh, the This condition is the condition that to be justified in what you do, you need to have at least one undefeated reason to do it. Undefeated is a term of art to cover the various ways in which a reason may come out of conflict, uh, unscathed or less scathed, (laughs) uh, such that it's all right to satisfy condition C, which is the condition that allows us to move from justifiability to actual justification, from, from doing something justifiably to doing it to be justified in doing it. Fying is actually justified only if the agent fies for one or more of the undefeated reasons to fie and not for any of the defeated reasons. Okay, so this moves attention from the existence of the reason to its presence in the reasoning of the agent. And so it's central to the argument that in understanding what it is to be justified in doing what you do, there is a accumulation, an accumulation of conditions uh, which begin with conditions on what reasons they must be, but end with an additional condition bearing on the use of that reason in your reasoning. Now, now why, why does that matter? Well, it, I, I begin by uh, giving a couple of non-discrimination contexts in which it matters. Uh, so I have an example about self-defense, um, and I have an example about... Um, Uh, what I call the arms dealer case so in the uh, it's a rather complicated self-defense case so I think maybe I'll just give you the arms dealer case uh, for simplicity's sake Uh, so in the arms dealer case we all know what the arms dealer might say Jonathan Glover wrote about this sort of scenario famously in an article about the uh, Solzhenitsyn principle Uh, uh, I can't remember what the article was actually called but it was a super article and the um, the example was one in which an arms dealer says, well, if I hadn't um, sold the arms, somebody else would have done it. And what's more, this is important, they would have been much worse than me. They would have sold much nastier arms in much greater quantities, much more efficiently. Yeah? Um, sometimes also called the estate agent. <laughs> uh, but for, out of politeness, I, I stuck at arms dealers. Um, But you can see what's about to happen. I'm about to argue from this example as from other examples that it really matters whether the arms dealer who makes this defense was selling the arms in order to stop the other arms dealer from being much worse. If it's just now a a happy ex post facto discovery that there was a nastier and worse arms dealer, uh, that's just uh, not a defense. (laughs) But it starts to move into defence territory if the arms dealer can say that he only went into this in order to frustrate the efforts of a much worse, uh, more nefarious and more efficient arms dealer than he. That starts, I don't say it's successful yet, there may be other conditions too, but it's the beginning of success in defending yourself. And I, I think that's important in understanding the, what I call the rudimentary badness of discrimination. Because the rudimentary badness of discrimination is a badness that's found only in cases where discrimination is rudimentarily bad. And those are the cases in which the discriminator doesn't have a reason. Doesn't have a reason for doing what he does that matches the reason that he takes himself to have. So he does this for the reason that, insert your preferred obnoxious category here, but that's not a reason doesn't count for anything, shouldn't have counted for anything. It certainly wasn't undefeated, because it wasn't a reason at all. Now, this is only a very narrow and specialized class of discriminators that are like this. They're utterly irrational types. And I gave an example of somebody uh, who fitted this model, although it's actually quite hard to make an example of this kind of discriminator uh, plausible, because most discriminators are not quite as irrational as this. Um, but my example uh, is on the back of the handout, and he's called Discriminator D1. And I, I introduce him as the next one, using a sort of question and answer. It's a sort of forensic technique there for getting at his motives. Uh, so I imagine now I'm the barrister in cross-examination. Yeah? So why did you refuse to hire this candidate? Answer, uh, because she's a woman. Yes, but what's your reason for not hiring women? Oh, the fact that they're women is reason enough. And so it's a slightly odd case because actually most discriminators don't stop there. They come up with all sorts of interesting uh, fancifications and embellishments. But sometimes I think you can get to the, if you could get to the heart and soul of a discriminator, the crudest kind, you might just find something as crude as this. Um, so the, the, the reason for giving you that example first is because it's a very simple illustration of the failure of justification. Uh, that marks out uh, discriminatory disadvantaging or discriminatory detrimenting from just disadvantaging or detrimenting. Uh, If you're going to disadvantage somebody you better have a reason. Uh, And it's a bit more complicated than that. It had better be an undefeated reason and you better act for it. And this guy, D1, he doesn't get very far down that list. yeah. He may have a reason, but if he has a reason, he didn't notice it, and he certainly didn't act for it. He acted for something that wasn't a reason. So far, no reason for turning this candidate down has been noted. So what would be rationally significant about that? Okay, so then we meet D2, and D2 is prepared to answer that follow-up question. D2 is not as crude a case as D1. So the cross-examination of D2 goes like this. Why did you refuse to hire her? Because she's more interested in her family than in the job. What makes you think so? Well, she's a woman, and women are more interested in their families than in their jobs. Okay, that, is, that adds a layer of... a thin layer of sophistication to the whole thing. Uh, why, why do I say a thin layer? Because it still makes you wonder. Uh, but you can see how the uh discriminator connects up the property of the candidate that she's a woman with the uh, refusal of the job you can see there is a sort of rudimentary reasoning Uh, and in the middle of it there lies something called a stereotype and i say a few words about what a stereotype is um but a stereotype is really a fancy kind of prejudice So what happens here is that the, uh, let's imagine that D2 is an employer. He's an employer and he does have a reason for not hiring some candidates. Let's grant him this. There are people who come to the interview and say, I'm not really very interested in work. I'd rather be at home with my family, right? It's not a very good interview strategy, whoever you are, to (laughs) say that. And it wouldn't be at all surprising if an employer took that to be a reason not to hire you. Now, I'm not going to defend that being a reason not to hire someone, I'm just going to let that stand as a concession to D2 that that would be a reason not to hire somebody. Uh, D2's, the slight complication in D2's case is that he automatically associates women with this interview answer. Right? He doesn't wait for them to give that answer. He assumes that that would be the answer they would give if they were speaking honestly, and he therefore uh, connects the property being a woman with the property not being very interested in the job compared to being at all. And that's a sort of reasoning, and it's a sort of reasoning that involves a falsehood, um, a false connection of one property to another, and one of those properties, let's concede for the sake of argument, would have been a reason, Uh, and because it's connected with this other property, there's some intelligibility, albeit great falsehood, to the idea that that's a reason too. So that, I think, is a more uh, um, familiar case of of a... a, a rudimentary discriminator. Why Why still call him rudimentary? Well, because although you can make rational sense of what he says, he still hasn't really got a reason. He's not got a valid reason. <laughs> it's hard to use the language of reasons um, in a clear way when you're writing about this or any other subject, because you often find yourself in the position of having to draw distinctions uh, between... Bad reasons and good reasons. Imagined reasons and actual reasons. Putative reasons and real reasons. And all of those uh, ways of putting the distinction are full of red herrings and false friends and so on. So it's not much fun to have to draw that distinction and rely on it throughout. But I, I have to draw it, and I do. So this is a character who has, what shall we call it, a putative reason. Yeah? It's just not a valid one in the sense that it shouldn't <coughs> count for anything the way he does it because he can't validly move from woman to not interested in the job. At least not his way. His way is just to assume, to generalize, to stereotype, without further inquiry. We'll come in a minute to somebody who's more subtle still than that, or more subtle than that, because D2 is not very subtle. Um, so that's... Uh, these are D1 and D2 belong to my... Uh, class of rudimentary discriminators and what they do is bad because it's unjustified they're, they're acting to somebody's detriment and they don't have a reason uh, or they don't have a valid reason um, and that's an additional kind of badness it goes like this, uh, if you're hurting somebody that's bad, if you're hurting somebody without justification that's worse now that you may say is a difficult proposition it's got a deontological flavour so it should have there are bits of ethics that are like that um, uh, the justification, uh, the lack of justification feature adds an additional negative, I'll put it that blandly, to what's already an unfortunate uh, occurrence, namely that somebody didn't get the job. And the, the discrimination case, the rudimentary discrimination case, is the case where uh, that happens because a property that the employer treated as a reason wasn't a reason. It's a very ordinary kind of thing. And it takes us back to an old-fashioned way of looking at discrimination that connects it up with uh, prejudice, but not tightly. I spend a bit of time at the end of section two explaining that the connection with prejudice is not tight because it's not essential um, in, to the, the failure of the discriminator's reasoning, if I could put it that way, that there be an epistemic fault involved, like uh, prejudice or gullibility or superstition. Often there is. But it could just be a mistake. It could even be a reasonable mistake that led the um, discriminator to regard this as a reason. It could be a reasonable mistake that led D2 to regard um, it as the case that women would rather stay at home than go to work. Let's suppose he's been indoctrinated. Uh, Let's suppose he spent too much time on Breitbart. Uh, and so let's imagine that he can explain thoroughly using a sort of complex ideological story how this is really true in, in spite of its falsehood. So now we're in the case of a discriminator who's probably excused. He's probably excused. That, that shouldn't worry us. He's still a discriminator. Um, it's still bad. Uh, the excuse comes of the fact that uh, the error in his reasoning was not owed to a further er- ep- epistemic error, but just owed to a, an ordinary, rationally defensible mistake. So let's, again, for the sake of argument, assume that there could be cases like that. It's no skin off my nose. I, want, I wanted to make it very clear throughout, and I made it very clear in encounters with Jeremy Waldron in the first section that I haven't bothered to explain to you, um, that I don't associate being a discriminator with being uh, blameworthy... Uh, at fault, a bad person, uh, any of that stuff. So uh, unlike Waldron, those sorts of uh, judgments of the agent are not part of my story at all. So uh, ending up with some discriminators who are excused, but who are still discriminators, and whose actions are still bad, that's fine for me. (laughs) I'm happy with that being uh, in in the outputs. All right, so uh, rudimentarily bad discrimination is not the main topic of my paper, really. Although I've managed to spend, how long? The best part of half, an, uh, well, half of my talk. It's not really where I'm heading for. I'm heading for wrongful discrimination. Because that's uh, quite a different thing. Not everything that's bad is wrong. It's an interesting question whether everything that's wrong is bad. Now, there's one... There's one tru- truistic or analytic, even analytic way in which everything that's wrong is bad because wrongness is a kind of badness. It, the more wrongs you commit, the worse that is. Uh, so among among other things that you should minimize when you're thinking about maximizing and minimizing is wrongs. Minimize your wrongs. Uh, that, by the way, was something that Derek Parfit nicely showed was a possible sort of paradoxical kind of uh, consequentialism, counting the, the wrongs, not the outcomes of the wrongs. But that, that, that's a kind of trivial uh, way in which wrongness is bad. I was more interested in the other thing, whether the, how you get from uh, ba- an independent kind of badness to wrongness. And um, in particular, is it the case that all the kinds of discrimination that are wrong started off as rudimentarily bad? And the verdict on that question, although it may be concealed in reams of text, my verdict on that question was, no, there's lots of wrongful discrimination that isn't rudimentarily bad. It may still be bad in other ways, but it's not rudimentarily bad. That is to say, it's not just an instance of disadvantaging people for what you wrongly took to be reasons. And why is that? It's because, actually... A very, very large amount of discrimination that's wrongful is uh, for perfectly good reasons. Perfectly good is another unpleasant phrase to have introduced there. They're obviously not perfectly good because it's wrongful to have acted for them. But they're perfectly good in another way, and I want to just explain what that way is. So this is where my other examples come in. Again, I've put them on the handout for what they're worth. I begin this bit of the analysis by going back to my character, D2. Remember, D2 is the stereotyper. So in cross-examination, I put it to the... Uh, I ask the discriminator, D2, why did you do it? Why did you deny uh, her the work? And the answer was because she's more interested in her family than her job. And then the follow-up question, what made you think so? Well, she's a woman and women are more interested. So that was the... That was the um, that was the stereotyping moment, yeah? And I wanted to now to give D2 another chance, so I let D2 come back onto the stand now as D2 prime. I think that my little prime marks came out as curly quotes in the, in the Aristotelian society, which must have been a, very irritating because they were straight in the version that I sent in. <laughs> you know how it goes with Microsoft Word that all those straight things go curly, uh, except when the curly things go straight. Uh, so, but in mine, it was important. Some of them were straight. They were prime. So D2 prime was a modification of D2, right? And he was given another chance to explain himself. And he gave what you might think was a slightly better explanation. In fact, you might think it was a substantially better explanation because D2 was extremely conscientious, all right? <coughs> D2 said, look, said, what I did uh, before I decided not to hire her was I went to the website of the Equality Commission who told me that women are often disadvantaged By their family responsibilities. And I asked for further figures, and the figures showed that uh, of women aged 28, a greater percentage will give up uh, their work within three years or take uh, leave within three years uh, to have children, to spend time looking after their children than will men. And I took that very seriously, just like the Equality Commission would want me to. And I decided that I should weight my decision that way. Women are more expensive. What, I'm not supposed to count that? So this is a character who doesn't stereotype. No, no, no. It's a different sort of story now. This is a character who conscientiously uh, looks for reasons and makes sure that he's got them before he acts on them, even by checking with the authorities that the the statistics he's using are the right ones. And... um, You may say, well, he shouldn't use those kinds of probabilities, but we don't object to those kinds of probabilities being used as reasons all the time. Normally, we'd think that was perfectly reasonable. So let's suppose that um, uh, later on I'm walking back to the station to catch the train, and I have a choice between uh, walking down a dark alleyway with lots of nooks and crannies, uh, or walking uh, down the Euston Road with lots of passing taxis and traffic, and I'm a nervous visitor to London, uh, a reasonable strategy would be to stick to the main rod. You never know what might happen down a dark alley. And if I checked, I'd probably find that it's true. You know, Lots of things happen down dark alleys that didn't happen on the eastern road. But we can imagine that if that is true, that that would vindicate my strategy for reasoning. Because a probability of a bad thing, which is a reason, is also a reason. It may not count for as much as the bad thing in its actualization. (coughs) Let's call that 100% weight, when the actualization is actual. (laughs) But if it's 50% likely, let's say it counts for something like 50%. So something like that, I don't want to stand up for that particular analysis of how you quantify, but something like that is true about probabilities. And um, so D2 prime, he's on firmer ground than all D2 was. He didn't just make any assumptions. He checked that these were not just hunches, but borne out by probabilities. So now we've got a different kind of discriminator. And I want to suggest that he's still uh, objectionable. This is wrongful discrimination still. Um, And then there's there's another example that removes the probabilities feature which I think is, in a way, a better example, and which actually picks up the relevant feature of D2 prime. So I call this character D3. And D3, I think, is the most common, or has been, in the recent history of, uh, of countries like ours, the most common case, right? So D3, he runs a cafe and a club, and uh, he has a bunch of antediluvian customers, and his antediluvian cafe customers don't like foreigners, anti club members don't want women to join the club. Actually, we could just have one of these, but I made it more colourful by having D3 have two different businesses that were affected in different ways by different properties that their customers objected to. And um, D3, he uh, goes along with the preferences of his customers, even though he thinks they're ridiculous. The first thing you think is, what a coward. Yeah? But you only think that, I, I suggest, because you already know what I know, that he's a wrongful discriminator. <laughs> in other words, judging that he's a coward is a result of judgments you've made further back about whose side he should be on in this situation. Let's try not to make those judgments yet, since they're the output of the discussion. So here he is. He lives in a neighbourhood filled with an antediluvian population. And as I put it in the paper, there aren't enough uh, cafe-loving foreigners or clubby women who can make up for the customer loss that his businesses will suffer if he opens his doors to the foreigners and women who are so objected to by his customers. They will flee elsewhere to more like-minded cafe owners and club hosts and leave him and his business will go under. And that, as he puts it in my summary, that's not good for anybody, even the foreigners or the women. And um, so uh, what would be the case for doing that? Better to go along with this, surely. Well, that's tendentious, isn't it? Better to go along with this, surely. I don't really think it's better to go along with this, but I do think we have a a problem here which is right at the heart of understanding uh, the immorality of discrimination, Uh, the wrongness of wrongful discrimination. Uh, the wrongf- wrongness of wrongful discrimination lies in, uh, well, I won't put it that way quite yet. The, wrongful, the wrongness of wrongful discrimination is the um, uh, a conclusion we should draw only once we've recognized that what we have here is a collective action problem. Uh, we're not going to be able to persuade even conscientious people like D3 who think that his Uh, customers are idiots, we're not going to be able to persuade them to change their discriminatory uh, habits unless we can instill some confidence in them that the tide is changing in their favour and that the flight of their customers won't lead to other clubs and cafes springing up with more antediluvian owners and hosts. And uh, so we have to begin (coughs) thinking about the problem here as a problem about uh, disadvantage uh, not just of the person who's denied the opportunity but the disadvantage of a class of persons to which that person belongs. Uh, A class of persons grouped together by the property P, foreigner, woman, which is currently being used to exclude them. So the rest of the paper ends up being a working out of the implications of just that, the thought that now what we have is a collective action problem. These are reasons that D2' prime and D3 has, and they might, depending on how you structure the example exactly, they might be undefeated reasons. So i tried to structure the example to make it at least plausible that they're undefeated reasons so far, until they're excluded from consideration. Why would they be excluded from consideration? Because we need to make discrimination wrong. We need to make discrimination wrong, and that means excluding these reasons from consideration. That's our task. So, discrimination on that view wouldn't be wrong apart from, these, in these cases, wouldn't be wrong apart from our making it so. So, in the language that's used sometimes by writers on the law, we should then begin think, thinking of wrongful discrimination as malum prohibitum, not malum in se. Once we've managed to make the duty by social custom or by law, once we've managed to make it, we've managed to solve various assurance and coordination problems such that uh, by doing that we've vindicated what we did. We were right to exclude those things from the consideration of our cafe owners and and our club hosts. We were right to make it the case that they wouldn't any longer take... Race or sex into account. Um, How were we vindicated? We vindicated because this gradually put a stop to discrimination. This gradually, not immediately, uh, takes, it's got to get a bit of traction. Social customs don't get dropped in overnight, even by heavy handed laws. Uh, That takes time. But the task of the operation was to. was to make it the case that something that would otherwise have been okay because it wasn't rudimentarily bad is now wrongful. And it really is wrongful if we're successful. That's an interesting thing about um, malum prohibitum is that when they are rightly created they actually make the action wrong. They don't just purport to or claim to. When they do what they are designed to do which is to break patterns that would otherwise... Be unbreakable; they become the very wrongs that they claim to be. So I talk a little bit about the um, about the relation between the legal and the social, as partly because I'm interested in the history of anti-discrimination laws. Uh, it takes a lot for the law to turn around to be an engine of turning around uh, social opinion, and. Nobody would claim that anti-discrimination law was an outright triumph in that respect. we all know that America's jails, for instance, are full of black people. And some of that is owed to discrimination. Some of it's owed to other sources of disadvantage. The part that's owed to discrimination shows that anti-discrimination measures haven't gained total social traction everywhere where they've been brought into force. But it is remarkable how much traction they've gained. (laughs) So it didn't take as long as you might expect if you had a knowledge of legal history for anti-discrimination law to make it socially unacceptable to uh, deny people invitations to parties because they're black or to refuse to let them into nightclubs uh, because they're gay. It, It happened fast. So I was interested in that. And I didn't discuss that as an empirical problem because I don't know anything about it as an empirical problem. But I think it's interesting because it reminds us that there's more than one way to solve these collective action problems. And the law can pay, play a part alongside other changes and can help to fuel them—social uh, changes that are not uh, that are not just among lawyers, but in a, a, among a wider population. So the end of the whole paper is sort of ruminations on the uh, uh, relationship between legal and social forces in making what's happened happen, and ruminations on some of the implications for how we should think about the future because we should worry that we might not always be so lucky. Uh, Why do I say that? Well, because the great success of anti-discrimination measures in making something socially unacceptable that were once socially acceptable in countries like this, among very large uh, tranches of the population, makes it very attractive to campaign to have your property pee added to the list of properties P that should benefit from anti-discrimination measures. So every couple of years, another campaign to add another property P is successful. And it may be, it's not my field, but it may be that you can't continue with the same success forever. But it may be that we get what I, in the paper, described as discrimination, anti-discrimination fatigue, in which we start to think, well, everything is discrimination now. And now that everything's discrimination, maybe we should go back and think a little bit harder about whether we really thought race discrimination was bad, or sex discrimination was bad. And I rather fear that there's some evidence in the world today of anti-discrimination fatigue, and that some political movements of the moment, which describe themselves as being partly inspired by a dislike of political correctness and a, a wish for return to something vaguely nostalgic, are partly able to achieve this because of a sort of discrimination anti discrimination fatigue in which more and more and more things are classed as wrongful discrimination. (coughs) And since we get to class them, remember they're mala prohibita, we get to choose when to stop. (coughs) So I'm arguing in this paper for a little bit of caution about that bearing in mind that once you've established that you've got a malum prohibitum, the main question that interests you is the effectiveness of what you're doing. If it's not effective, then it's not any longer successful, and so we shouldn't any longer think of it as making the thing wrong, that it purported to make wrong, once it stops being effective. That's an unfortunate thing. So it may be that anti-discrimination law could be victim of its own success in that way. And I know that my children, who are very keen on the word discrimination, are also very undiscriminating in their use of the word discrimination. Because whatever you say, they pretty much say it's discrimination. All right? So I, the, the best example that I can come up with is the one that I used in the original lecture in, uh, in Brazil, which was before Donald Trump became president of the United States i had been sitting at the dinner table uh, with my daughters and i had uh, as usual become slightly you know red around the face about about mr trump and i had said you know that man is an idiot and so are his supporters and rather than taking the view that perhaps there was something to be said in their favor my teenage daughter said that's discrimination Well, actually she didn't say that first she said first of all that's racism I think I say a little bit about that in the paper as well. But she quickly said, no, 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 I didn't mean that. Especially when I pointed out that he was a, a ginger-haired Scotsman like me. Um, she said, No, 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 I didn't mean a racist. Yeah. But that's discrimination. She was much firmer about that. And it was because she had this view that the list of P properties that you could complain about uh, being discriminated on the basis of was sort of infinitely elastic. And so she's come to think that nothing should be left off it Now that's a rather extreme stretching of what I think is quite often stretched in public culture. Um, And the reason isn't hard to see because many people are disadvantaged. And many people are disadvantaged by discrimination. And when they're disadvantaged by discrimination, then one way to alleviate their disadvantage is to control the discrimination. And one good way, it turns out, to control discrimination is by having norms against discrimination. So you create your norms against discrimination, legal, maybe social, then out of that you get less discrimination and then out of that you get less disadvantage. It doesn't remove disadvantage generally, it moves disadvantage owed to discrimination. It's very important to understand that that's the aim of the exercise, uh, not to remove disadvantage altogether. But disadvantage owed to discrimination has played a large part in the disadvantage faced by many people. So eradicating it or reducing it is a powerful thing if you can achieve it. So when you spot disadvantage and you spot discrimination, it's a short move to thinking what we need are norms that will take people like D2 prime and D3, who are reasonable people, who are thinking hard about what they do, and for the sake of argument might be motivated to get rid of all these discriminators around them that they have so much contempt for, although that might be discrimination against discriminators. That would be what my daughter would say. But, um, but there are those people, and we think, well, we can deal with them. We've got a technique for doing that. We've done it many times before. So the picture I have is that that uh, might be a, at least a, a path of uh, diminishing uh, returns. So I haven't taken you through everything in the paper, but I thought I would emphasize the payoffs at the end, because I don't think that I made as much of them as I did of the philosophical moves in the rest. I thought it might be interesting for us to see where the politics of the paper might head. That's interesting also because um, those who, uh, I, I've been criticized for holding a view like this, the DRA view. Uh, remember I told you about at the beginning, according to which the emphasis should be on the discriminator's reasons. Because that's supposed to be a view that doesn't sit well with um, modern anti-discrimination law and policy. And that's because modern anti-discrimination law and policy includes many sophisticated derivative uh, norms, including norms of indirect discrimination and institutional discrimination. And those who think that it's all about the discriminator's reasons are supposed not to be good at analysing those more sophisticated policy and legal techniques. So I spent a bit of time at the very beginning of the paper showing that uh, I have no trouble analysing those more sophisticated legal and political techniques and approving of them. So as far as race relations law and sex discrimination law go, I could be considered a bit of a politically correct, radical, progressive type of person. But I might not be quite so inclined if you ask me, should we expand it forever? So I worry a lot about anti-discrimination law becoming its own worst enemy and i think it's a technique that should be used cautiously so that's the uh, that's the punchline thanks very much for listening